Hello everyone, and welcome back to Election Day. This is my seventh recap and follow-up episode, where I'll be reviewing and expanding on topics from my last seven episodes. And given that Joe Biden delivered his State of the Union address last week, though technically not a State of the Union, I will be referring to that and seeing how that lines up with the things that I've talked about so far. So, let's get straight into it. My first episode this season was on conspiracy theories. Now, it seems like since Trump left office, conspiracy theories have sort of been fading away. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I just think that they're becoming a part of the political ecosystem. They're becoming symbiotic integral to our society, which, you know, is scarier. Conspiracy theories, obviously, individually, their goal is to persuade people of their specific set of beliefs. But if we start to view them as a collective, they're almost trying to sow a more general distrust. Not that the COVID vaccine has a chip in it specifically, but that there is just something wrong with the whole vaccine situation. So, I think conspiracies are, in fact, dying off with regards to their specific doctrines. There might be, I don't know, fewer people who actively believe in everything QAnon says. But what I think is still present and growing is a more general distrust around just sort of everything. And what I mean when I say conspiracies are becoming symbiotic to the political ecosystem is that this general distrust is now being pushed by the Republican Party. Of the two major parties in the US, one of them has a culture that's analogous to that of conspiracies. The reason intellectual freedom and think-for-yourself becomes so central to the conservative ideology nowadays in particular is not just because conservatives have a noble desire for intellectual freedom, but it's because they can put that through the lens of don't trust what they tell you. And that is what scares me, that the general distrust continues to survive despite, you know, QAnon continually being proved wrong. And another way in which conspiracy theories are becoming symbiotic to the political ecosystem is that much like a real virus, they're able to attach and take over whatever identities they happen to land on. What really surprised me is that QAnon has so much Christian imagery and even direct references to Christianity in it among its devout followers. Of course, there's no actual legitimate relationship between those two things, but conspiracies and especially general distrust is over to take over everything. Conspiracy theories also, as I sort of subtly said in the original episode, appeal to all demographics. 
it's not just old white men. A surprising number of people, the vast majority, fall outside that demographic. And there again, whatever diverse identities they fall on, conspiracies are able to just adopt that. And so, here's the thing about conspiracy theories and why they will remain and be back stronger, which is that so long as a general distrust exists, and so long as society seems murky, people will search for truth. And the misguided end result of that is in a mild form distrust and in a strong form conspiracy. The second episode this season was on voting reform. The main update on this topic is the release of the new electoral college map, also how many representatives go to each state based on the 2020 census information. There's nothing too surprising or drastic here. One or two votes isn't going to swing a presidential election. But the brief summary is Democrats lose marginally. States like New York lose representatives, and we have states like Texas gain representatives. And of course, those will likely be Republican seats. The other way of putting it is Democrats lose for now, because there are forecasts that show Texas becoming blue in the very near future, and long term, is it good or bad for the Sun Belt to gain influence? That obviously depends on if and when these states flip. But that's not what I really want to get to. Seeing the map just made me think again about the Electoral College. The Electoral College is just the most ridiculous system. No other democracy does presidential elections this way, at least no democracy with a presidential system, and there's just no reason to do it. All the Electoral College does is maximize wasted votes, irrelevant votes. If you live in California, New York, Texas, these big states that are clearly going to go one way in the election cycle, your vote doesn't matter. It's not going to change the result. And typically the argument for the Electoral College is that it protects the rights of small states, but it doesn't. Because if you live in, you know, Rhode Island, North Dakota, Alaska, Hawaii, your vote still doesn't matter. As long as you're clearly leaning one way, your state as a whole, your vote still doesn't matter. The only states that Electoral College works for is maybe five states out of 50, the swing states, in a lucky year. Seriously. If we try to design a system to be as undemocratic as possible, to maximize wasted votes while still allowing people to actually vote, the Electoral College would get 
pretty close. And thinking about the argument that it protects small states, I also started thinking about other things like the filibuster. Because so often we have these systems in place, according to the Republican Party doctrine, to protect the little guy, to protect the minority. But it doesn't. Or at least in the commonly accepted definition of the minority. So many of our systems, like the Senate, like the filibuster, like the Electoral College, they protect the political minority. Or in other words, the majority. By that I mean, you know, white, rural-slash-suburban voters. And I honestly don't think that we should live in a country and a political system that advantages white, rural-suburban voters because they are a minority. If we think about the filibuster, right, we always have more Democrats complaining about it, at least politicians, than Republicans. And we sort of think, hey, why doesn't the filibuster annoy Republicans as much? Why doesn't it work the other way? And that's because Republicans already represent a minority, so that 40 Republican senators, in reality, they represent a significant minority, whereas 40 Democratic senators might still represent popular opinion. So, and I should be careful of getting too partisan, but when the Republican Party stands up for the little guy, because they want to stand up for freedom, for freedom at the smallest level, I think what they're really doing is allowing the smallest fraction to set the rules. So, that was my second episode. The third episode of the season was about the media, specifically about Fox News and Tucker Carlson, and I made the case that they are propaganda. And with a couple more months of the Biden presidency, and with the progression of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think Tucker Carlson has only proved my point. And it's not a partisan criticism, definitely go listen to the original episode if you're interested, but we've seen how there was that famous clip of him basically criticizing people who wear masks and saying that telling a child to wear a mask is like abuse. It's not just about liberties, right? He has this inexplicable agenda against mask wearing and caution. And that inexplicable agenda starts to make sense when you realize he's just echoing what Donald Trump and by extension the Republican Party loves saying. That's why I said Tucker Carlson is a propaganda machine. But with COVID-19, we're seeing the dangers of having an opinion show, so-called news, that's so outrageously dumb. It is dangerous. That's something that I have previously also said about Donald Trump, right? Tucker Carlson is not a opinionated replacement for news. 
he is taking the place of a Trump figure. And that stuff about COVID points to a broader trend on Fox News and in shows like Tucker Carlson. A major part of their agenda is the attack on expertise. A show like Tucker Carlson wants two things. Number one, they want you to know that he's on your side. And number two, they want you to trust him as the ultimate source of information so that they can shape your opinion however they want. In that sense, it's actually very similar to a lot of conspiracy theories, wanting you to doubt everything but trust them or him. And that's why Tucker Carlson, he so often says, these experts aren't real experts. They're just part of the deep state. I know what I'm talking about. My people know what they're talking about. That's why we have such a non-science-based approach on Fox News around COVID-19 or climate change or things like that. Again, very, very dangerous to have this everyday attack on scientific expertise and expertise in general on a news site. In addition to attacking expertise, another way in which he creates the conspiracy-like doubt is through his rhetorical questions. And this isn't just some small thing that I'm obsessing over. If you watch Tucker Carlson, you'll know that his entire show is questions. He has so many rhetorical questions, and he's really trying to imply we don't have the answers. There is no objective reality. And that things aren't as they seem, right? We know people use a lot of rhetorical questions when trying to sow doubt. Like, is it really that way? And his rhetorical questions are also very often paired with assumptions, and worse, manufactured truths. He'll just create a series of, we don't know this, are you sure it's that way? And then he'll just state, like, whatever, just something that he assumes to be true, so that it seems like an answer to those questions, but really it's replacing reality as an answer. So part one of my updated critique is Fox News is becoming ever more like a conspiracy. They adopt the language of attacking expertise, asking questions without providing answers. And the second half of my critique of Fox News and Tucker Carlson in particular is the hate of inclusivity. A sort of educated racism, not the raw form that you might see associated with populism, but a hate of inclusivity packed in a way that seems like genuine political analysis, or backed up with history or statistics or whatever. It's using education and the veneer of legitimacy to justify what Fox News seems to represent, which is exclusivity. And beyond that, I don't even have time to unpack. So instead, we'll move on to my next episode, which is about political engagement. And I just want to talk about 
the purpose for this episode because the content itself, I think, is a completed product, but I think it'd be helpful to share why I wanted to convey this. And the reason is because I wanted us to be more grounded in the way that we care about politics. I think, especially in the digital age and during COVID, when we're sort of isolated physically and isolated geographically within the country, so many political issues almost exist in a bubble. So much of caring about politics and about political issues seems to be words, words, words all the time. And it is, with the exception of vaccines, sort of hard to see effects, impacts, issues, that kind of thing. So I made the episode about how to care about politics properly so that we just get started thinking more about exactly who we care about, exactly where we're caring about, what we're doing, how we're caring. This is a bit of an abstract concept that I find difficult to put into words, but I hope you get what I mean by tying issues more into the real world. And I also thought this episode would be very helpful as a guide because one of the biggest things and trends in modern politics is, oh, the problem is other people. The problem in the country is that other people think a certain way or say certain things. And I do think that there is space in politics to analytically think about mindsets and different demographics, but I don't know if it's that helpful, especially given the demonization that's happening. It would be better to think about things and not people. And for more people to recognize that most people want what they think is good and right. And if people start to really engage with politics, hopefully we'd start to see that tribalism disappear a little bit, and we could center more around issues. And finally, the message of this guide to political engagement, what I really wanted to convey is that we need controlled anger. This is sort of what John Lewis said when he talked about good trouble and the age-old theme of righteous indignation. But I think the problem is that we have a lot of just trouble, just indignation, when what we really need is to be able to understand that things are bad and be angry, but at the same time be able to have control and be able to have focus. And that we're really able to see and think through the who, what, when, where, why, and how of issues without just being wrapped up in our little bubble of anger. Because emotions are only powerful tools if you're able to harness them and focus them in the proper way 
and that's what the episode was intended to do. Now, my fifth episode of the season was sort of two episodes compressed into one. The first one focused a little bit on the political spectrum, and then I moved on to elitism and how the two parties manage the balance between elites and non-elites. The first point I want to make here is just pushing back on the narrative that we have people voting against their interests, because I don't think that's true. I think people have different interpretations of their interests. You can have, you know, poor people vote for Donald Trump, even though their economic interests could be wildly different, because everybody has their own interests and motives. So, I think we should be careful in the way we talk about the elitism gap, just to make sure that we're, you know, for example, critiquing the Republican Party's economic policies and how that might disadvantage poor people, rather than going after the base, if that makes sense. The second thing I wanted to think about is America's weirdly distorted political spectrum. When I introduced the political spectrum in the original video, I said that you have liberals against conservatives, and then the extreme forms on either side are radicalism and reactionary views. But what's interesting is that most Democrats the vast majority, even those you might think of as pretty left-wing, can be pretty safely categorized as liberal, and the moderate politician in the U.S. is conservative, while we have the Republican Party that, I would have to say at this point, the Trump-dominated Republican Party is reactionary. They live and die by the principle of make America great again. And if you need to know what this terminology means, then go listen to the original episode. That's already something that's just interesting just to think about, you know, the center-right norm in American politics, but it becomes a little more significant when we think about it on the scale of systemic issues and systemic changes. Because I told you that the doctrine of conservatism is that we should keep things the way things are, because the way things are is good, or at least we don't have widespread systemic issues. And I think it's really well summed up by what Tim Scott said in his rebuttal to the State of the Union, which is that, you know, America has racist incidents, but America is not a racist country. Sort of, you know, saying isolated incidents, denying the systemic element of it. This is just a thought, so I don't have a big message out of it, but I think it's a a good thing to keep in mind thinking about, you know, where do people lie on that spectrum from change to no change. And in this section, I also want to talk more about Biden's State of the Union speech, because I want to think about it sort of in the lens of stability of the Democratic Party and the liberal wing of American politics. The biggest takeaway from Biden's speech, for most people including me, 
was probably how progressive he came across as being. After he talked about the vaccine and the positive COVID progress, he made the case for big government. He talked about his economic plans to get out of the COVID situation, to improve the health situation, and then reshape the American economy. This is big-scale stuff. It's, to a lot of people, a somewhat surprising progressivism coming from the moderate Joe Biden. But what I want to say is that it's actually unsurprising. Liberalism is an ideology that's most stable and has the least discontent from its various wings when we don't have people stalling, when people keep going, keep making change. And Biden, I think, understands that because he is almost an embodiment of the Democratic Party more so than the people further to the left. Even though he's sort of the Senate man, the moderate negotiator, he is clearly not taking the strategy of playing it too strategic, thinking about what the Republicans may or may not take, calculating the votes. He's just continuing to chug out his proposals. And, you know, is that what's ultimately going to pass? I don't know. I mean, so far he hasn't had major bills that have failed, but in terms of the balance of the party, I think he understands that to keep his base of power in the liberal wing, he has to keep doing things. I think part of this strategy is also that he understands that Republicans can't stall. They're in a position that as long as he keeps going, they can't resist. And here's why. Because the progress that Biden is making as of currently is regarding the vaccine. It's about improving the COVID situation. It's about economic plans, about reviving jobs and helping families. These things that are the most popular aspects of liberalism and the Democratic Party. Traditionally, Republicans in power use the fiscal conservatism argument that it's irresponsible of Joe Biden to pass such big spending bills. But that's not something that's popular. The Republican Party needs to be able to maintain both aspects, one side being, you know, the fiscal conservatism, the trickle-down economics that the benefiting the elite, and the other side is the populism, continuing to have their appeal among the population. And if fiscal conservatism is the only thing they can go with, because the plan is something that is popular, then the Republican Party isn't able to motivate their base as much. So I think Joe Biden understands that he can keep pushing his proposals as of right now, because he doesn't have anything to lose. And that's why this progressivism is actually unsurprising, because he's just reacting to circumstances, especially such dire circumstances. Now, my last two episodes of this season I'll go through pretty quickly. 
the sixth episode was about American diplomacy. And here I just have two sort of discontents where Biden's supposed turn to globalism and his need to return to diplomacy doesn't match necessarily with what he's doing. I talked about the need for American involvement, an enlarged influence that returns to America's superpower status. But I don't think that Joe Biden has been sticking up for American diplomacy to the extent that is necessary. He's not punishing authoritarian leaders because while he is making some statements, he's not taking actual significant drastic action, the things that we need, against Putin for imprisoning Navalny, Alexei Navalny. Or he's not really punishing Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. He's not standing up against brutal authoritarian regimes like he should. He's not setting that precedent. And he's not actually that willing to help out other countries either. There's a really good article on Vox.com that talks about how it's America first Biden style. That, you know, he didn't raise the refugee cap and he's reluctant to share the vaccine with other countries. And the broader point that the article tries to make is that the fade from internationalism still stands under Biden. We're not making a shift towards the world like we should. And, you know, for me, foreign policy is probably one of the issues I care about most. And I'd like to see that move up on Biden's checklist. And I'd like to see a more radical restructuring of America's relations. America's just too quiet on the global stage when we really do need to be making moves. Because, as I said in the original episode, America still does keep the global order together. And the link to the Vox article about how Biden's only continuing America first, I'll put that in the description. And by the way, that's something that is broadly true, like even on economic issues. I think I've said this before, but the principle of centering policy around reviving American manufacturing instead of shifting to a new economic era, like someone like Andrew Yang might focus on, that's also a Trump remnant. And my most recent episode was about immigration. I don't have that much to add to this episode because I made it so recently. I was really just trying to point out how difficult the situation is, how difficult the choices that need to be made are on the border. If you want to see my take or what I've presented, go listen to the episode, as with all of them. But the one question that I just want to throw out as I wrap up this episode, even though immigration and the border, this seems to be Fox's issue, the conservative issue, Whenever we have someone like Biden or liberals bringing it up, we see almost a refusal to engage with the humanitarian side. 
and it being, you know, exclusively security-oriented, when when you have Ted Cruz making speeches just by himself, he'll still bring up the humanitarian side, just not, never really engage with it. So I've just sort of been thinking about, you know, can you be conservative and still care about immigrants, still be inclusive? Can you be conservative and care? And in the modern era, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I hope it's a yes. The cap to the message of this season is I hope Tucker Carlson proves that the answer is yes. I hope the conservative base proves that the answer is yes. We've also seen this Liz Cheney thing blow up this week. This is the Republican congresswoman who voted to impeach Trump, and now she's about to get ousted from her leadership position for not abiding by the party line and being loyal to Trump, which is a scary thing, you know? That is such a dictatorial and authoritarian trend that for disobeying this one guy, you can lose your standing in politics. So last season, I talked about Biden and his policies. This season, I talked a lot about the Republican Party. And I hope that in the next now less than four years, they do turn out to be a more legitimate political party. Because they have taken such a scary turn. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and see you next week. Actually, I will not be back next week. I'm going to take a one-week break next week between seasons 7 and 8, but after that, I'll be back. So please stick around for more Election Day.